Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This week, it's all about spies as I talk with British author Paul French about espionage in Hong Kong. Around the time of the Communist Revolution in China in 1949, businesses moved south from Shanghai and other major cities to set up in Hong Kong. With them came gold bullion and banknotes. I asked Paul what the purpose of the industrial espionage was around 1949 here in Hong Kong. Was it to destroy other businesses or get ahead of them by finding out what they were manufacturing? The spies were largely looking to make money. Two things had happened. One was the Second World War was over and there was a civil war in China that, of course, by the late 1940s wasn't going uh, in the nationalists' favour. And so everybody had to find a new job. And there had been an enormous intelligence network founded by the head of Chiang Kai-shek's intelligence services, Dai Li, and they, they needed jobs. And, of course, so much industry, mostly from Shanghai, had moved down to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong was not a great industrial centre before. It was a Royal Navy port. It was a, a sort of strategic place for shipping. It wasn't really a manufacturing centre. That whole kind of made in Hong Kong thing happens after the war. And so what you have is lots of things being made. Uh, and so, you know, people wanting to know who's making what, where they're getting their inputs from, how much are they selling it for, who are their customers, how can I win that business? And at the same time, you've got a load of spies who actually all know these people anyway from back on the mainland. So it's interesting how formalized it was in the in late 1940s. We start seeing groups of pretty open former spies in, in the way that lots of private security companies around the world today advertise themselves as employing lots of people from MI5, CIA, Mossad, whatever, right? You know, it's a kind of badge of honor, isn't it? It's your certification. And they start offering a subscription service, actually. You can pay a, a hundred US dollars <laughs> a month, which is a fair bit at that time. And they'll tell them what your industry is. I don't know, chemicals or plastics or, or whatever's, you know, the big boom industries in Hong Kong at that time. And they'll tell you exactly what's happening, what's shipping in, what's shipping out, who's tendering for what, who's developing new products here, there and everywhere. You know, what countries are, are, are looking to buy from Hong Kong. So it became a really lucrative business. And of course, as Hong Kong has remained a major manufacturing center of one sort or another since the Second World War, industrial espionage has really been, you know, when we think of espionage, there's all the sexy stuff. But the industrial espionage, having a look around everybody's books and uh, seeing who they're meeting with uh, over lunch or on their telephone is, is kind of the, the bread and butter of espionage in Hong Kong, I think. But also, um, interestingly enough, I mean, I always, I should get over it, but I always am surprised just how long piracy goes on in Hong Kong. I always think of piracy as a you know, 19th century problem. And, and of course, it's not at all. So uh, pirates were doing rather well after the war. Yes, I mean, you know, piracy piracy never goes away, does it? What people are up to as pirates sort of changes. I mean, you know, you could loot the Spanish main or loot and kidnap steamers going between Xiamen and Hong Kong or Macau and Hong Kong. But then after the war, of course, it's, it's slightly different products that start coming through. The ones that people were particularly worried about was all of these guns that were coming out of China. Of course, yeah. after all those years of war, there'd been so many uh, uh, guns around China and those coming into the then colony of Hong Kong was, of course, of some concern, given that there was you know, a spike in crime wave as well. And even down to sort of bazookas 
and hand grenades. And of course, we know that after the Second World War, everywhere in Britain, in America, and all over the place, the level of violence and sophistication of bank robberies and things like that increases because you've suddenly got so many men who know how to use different bits of uh, sort of fascinating weaponry and, and, and can sort of do it. There's guns everywhere. But also other things that people wanted, which are still sort of smuggled items. There's, there's scotch whiskey coming in from all over the place, which, of course, had high tariffs. So you want to smuggle that in. There's carpets coming down, which are from Beijing and uh, from so Tianjin. How, how, how do you smuggle carpets? Well, it's not that difficult, Anne-Marie, to be honest. You, you roll them up, you put them on a boat, and at night you sail them into Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> and then you sell them. Uh, it's not that difficult. Other goods that were being smuggled at the time, particularly, were um, barrels of shark's fins. And I think that's one that we still occasionally see oh, yeah. getting uh, uncovered coming over the border. So all, all of these things uh, were sort of coming in. I mean, I could give you a long list of other things that, that were going the other way as well. Like? I mean, um, you know, <laughs> they were bringing in, <laughs> well, uh, blood plasma. For a start, oh. was a very interesting one. There's all sorts of uh, historical reasons why why blood plasma is in short supply in China. But blood plasma, obviously, for people who were having operations, pregnant women, hospitals were very, very short of it. But also people used it as a kind of a tonic. They would go places in Shanghai and other places and have sit and have it kind of put in through an IV drip believing that there was some sort of uh, tonic in it. But they didn't want to donate it, so there were shortages of it. But other things as well, I mean, drugs, you know, drugs like phenobarbital and, and things like that, pharmaceutical-type drugs that were obviously being produced and, and being shipped into Hong Kong, but weren't after the wartime destruction of factories and things weren't necessarily being produced in China. So there, there's all sorts of goods going backwards and forwards, as well, of course, as we, kind of, you know, in the late 1940s, people trying to get stuff out particularly around, you know, when the crunch time comes in 1949, there's lots of push to get as much gold and other sort of, yes. you know, carryable currency, particularly with, with the Chinese dollar at that time becoming uh, completely worthless, really, to get particularly gold, silver and other things out of the country to sort of fund your new life. So, I mean, would people just literally bring it in with them, like in suitcases and stuff or...? Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, someone I know told me that their father, who was a Jewish refugee doctor, a Viennese doctor in Shanghai, spent the last years of the 1940s. He used to make girdles for people who had bad backs to sort of keep your spine straight when you walked. You know, he was, he was an expert at this. But he started manufacturing things that were girdles that allowed you to slip gold bullion bars <laughs> in, in, in pockets. But when you walked with your suit, it wouldn't sort of destroy the line of the suit. It wouldn't be particularly obvious and it would give support so that you weren't sort of dragged down by the gold. And you could walk up the gangplank onto the ship and off you went down to Hong Kong or wherever you were going with, with all of your gold. And that, that became very lucrative business, uh, trading gold, trying to get gold out of the country, trying to buy gold as a convert, you know, with wheelbarrows of, of cash. So, of course, the triads were involved in that. And of course, people smuggling as well. So politics changes the situations a little bit. But as we know, organized crime is also very adaptable. You know, they also were very interested in espionage because they wanted to know what's worth stealing, right? There's however many planes flying between China that's about to fall to the communists and Hong Kong. Well, which ones are full of gold? Yes. And which ones are full of cash? And, you know, I, I give a number of examples of planes that kept disappearing all over the place. So, so interestingly, although you probably think of pirates as boats, they start hijacking planes in, in the late 1940s. And some of these planes just simply vanish, flying silver dollars from Hong Kong to Taiwan, just completely 
vanished. Another one going between Hong Kong and Macau, carrying gold bullion, hijacked and disappeared. These planes were never found. They were hijacked by pirates who had information due to people that they'd managed to place within the airlines and, and within the RAF offices that were supplying them with information. And those planes were never found. But of course, there were so many airstrips all over China, particularly at that time, if you just think of southern China alone, airstrips all over the place that were built by the Japanese as military airstrips where you could land a plane, empty it, disappear into the night and burn the plane so that no one ever finds it. So so that became quite a thing for a while. And at that time, the Royal Air Force, of course, and its pirate suppression units, it didn't have any planes working. They were still leaving it all to the Navy, sailing around in ships. So they didn't really have any way of uh, doing very much about planes. Yes, quite a challenge for the Hong Kong government at that time, post-war. Now, if we go a few years earlier, of course, during the Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong, I often think about, you know, when I'm thinking about espionage, I'm thinking more of sabotage in terms of things like the British Army Aid Group. But you've also looked at Japanese military spies. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the idea that um, part of the reason that, that Hong Kong fell as, as it did on Christmas Day 1941, was that there had been Japanese spies stoking up fifth columns and, and creating an atmosphere that, that would make it easier for them to invade. And to go back again to um, triads, uh, one of the great experts in Japanese wartime intelligence, an academic called Ken Kotani, has talked about Chinese-speaking, Cantonese-speaking, Japanese intelligence officers that worked within the triads and got them to do various things. And, and you know, at this level, we know that organised crime is, is rarely patriotic. And when it is patriotic, it's because it's paid to be patriotic and so on. Right? So it kind of goes with whatever side it thinks can win and it's willing to switch sides throughout a conflict, as we saw with organisations from the Italian mafia in yes. Italy through, through to, you know, organised crime gangs in London that went around robbing houses during the Blitz. I mean, you know, I mean, Organised crime is, is not particularly ethical, funnily enough. So, yes, they definitely moved within there trying to do that, within the triads. But really, um, yes, Japanese agents all through Hong Kong at that time. And, of course, we know how successful that was in places like Shanghai, where there was more of a Japanese community for them to move. And we know within you know, the novels of Eileen Chang and so on just how effective those espionage networks were of both Chinese collaborators and Japanese intelligence. So that's in the Japanese military occupation here from Christmas Day in 1941 through till the end of the war in August 1945. So we've got that. That Then you were describing about, you know, this in the uh, run-up and to the uh, time in 1949 when the communist revolution occurs in China, you've got all of this bullion and uh, other forms of uh, wealth coming down to Hong Kong. But the other thing is then, of course, the curtain comes down, or the bamboo curtain comes down, and uh, it was very difficult then at that point for journalists, for anybody, to, to kind of work out what was going on in China. So how did people, you know, I mean, Hong Kong then becomes quite a, a centre for this, for China watching, but how did you spy on mainland China? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tricky to work out how you do it, really. And, of course... You know, you can't just sort of infiltrate white guys up into communist <laughs> Shanghai or, Be or Beijing after, by the 1950s, it becomes very difficult as people are being expelled. I mean, in the early 50s, it's quite interesting because there's still a lot of people in China. I mean, missionaries, business people, reporters are still there. It's not like, 
you know, on October the 1st, 1949, the bamboo curtain comes down and that's the end of everything. It takes quite a few years for, for things to shake out. And there's all sorts of prisoner swaps going on as well all this time. Missionaries who are accused of spying, individuals who are accused of spying. And I mean, up in Beijing, there were several uh, foreigners who were executed for supposedly planning to assassinate Mao, although it was, it, it always seems to be, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to ascertain what they were really up to and whether or not this was just fabricated. But I mean, that, that's how rife spy mania was. And of course, still a lot of thought of who were the nationalist stay behinds who were looking to maybe uh, disrupt the new administration. So all of that's going on. But as you quite rightly say, you've also got a lot of people sitting in Hong Kong looking at what's going on over in China. I mean, there is the case, the, the, the case that I thought was sort of an interesting one is the one of Donald Dixon and Richard Applegate and, and their friend Benjamin Krasner, who are all Americans, and they take a yacht out, quite where the demarcation lines are between mm. the People's Republic of China and, and Hong Kong waters are, is not overly clear. It's a very tense time. Um, they go sailing down towards uh, Wampoa and Lapsap May, which is which is really not much of a, a place now at all, but at the time was being used as a, a transshipment centre in the 1950s. Um, obviously, as China was kind of cut off from a lot of trade routes, there were lots of ships coming in from the by then communist Eastern Bloc and uh, Soviet Union and so on, who were trading with communist China. And they were often using that island as a transshipment center on the grounds that bigger ships couldn't couldn't get up the river to Guangzhou. So they went around those islands and got themselves into awful trouble. And, and I mean, but they always claimed they were innocent. They were sort of taken ashore uh, on the islands and questioned and then taken to Guangzhou and questioned for a while and eventually uh, released, but not until about 18 months later. So so it was no small thing. But the other argument, of course, is um, what were they up to? Why were they digging around? They were journalists. And, uh, you know, um, <laughs> but, well, the, t the two great covers that, that come up again and again in China and Hong Kong for spies are journalist, obviously, and um, ornithologist. Um, and I assume it's ornithologists because you can go out into the countryside and remoter parts of the country with a pair of high power binoculars and, um, and, and claim to innocently be looking at, at birds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of them do seem to get caught on that. And in fact, uh, back before the First World War, a couple of Germans who claimed to be out looking uh, at birds and uh, various fauna and foliage were arrested for that. These Americans that sort of claim to have sailed their yacht too close to this island and then got caught and kept for 18 months, like all spying things, of course, no one admits to anything and um, claims to be completely innocent. And the other side says they're completely guilty and doesn't bother to show you any evidence for that. And they don't really have any, any evidence that they weren't doing anything. So we'll have to put that one down to um, a misunderstanding. That was going on a lot at the time, very tense atmosphere with the Royal Navy sailing around, no one quite sure where the uh, lines were, um, reasonably chaotic time in China, very tense, artillery firing off at the Royal Navy, people sailing into the wrong places and, and kind of getting caught. And occasionally, of course, pirates sailing through all the middle of that and still causing trouble. So, so the waters around Hong Kong were still very contested. Of course, Hong Kong, British territory up until 1997. How were the British spying on the Chinese? Well, I mean, hard to say, really. And I mean, I wouldn't want to overstate the case of the British trying to, to spy on, on, on China. The British, of course, had Little Saiwan, which was a, was a listening post, which, of course, was full of information that they shared with uh, 
what we now call the five eyes, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all the Anglo countries. And what was interesting there was, of course, um, they were listening in on as much you know, audio traffic as they as they could in China. What was interesting, I think, mostly there was that what's interesting is that the translators that were working there and so on actually were seeing, of course, a lot of documents. And, and some of that was getting um, passed back over to the Chinese, not that they were mm. shocked by what was in the documents, but that they knew what they were. They knew what Britain was seeing or what the people at Little Saiwan were seeing. It is also an interesting one for, for sort of British historians because although, of course, Britain didn't send troops to Vietnam and British Prime Minister Harold Wilson uh, didn't want to get involved in that conflict, Little Saigon was monitoring North Vietnamese radio communications and passing them along to Washington. And info that they were passing along was used to help American bombing raids try and target North Vietnamese forces a little bit better. But then in 1973 as well, which was interesting, um, we saw a defection from Little Saiwan with people who had a lot of classified material that had been gathered there about the Chinese nuclear weapon program at Lop Nor, which is in um, uh, Xinjiang, the, the Chinese uh, nuclear testing base. And the interesting thing about that, of course, was not that the Chinese needed to be told how their nuclear tests were going, but that they then realized that, of course, their wireless communications had been kind of uh, accessed. And so they switched over to various forms of communications that couldn't be at that time tapped into or, or listened to very easily. Landlines, basically. The spying was in order to know what we knew so that they could then change what they were doing so that we didn't know anything. Now, here in, you know, during the Cold War time in Hong Kong, of course, we've got, you know, as we've talked before on a previous programme, on your uh, programme on uh, John le Carré, but uh, the fact is that you've got multiple nationalities here, that, that Hong Kong becomes the place for China watching. But I just wanted you just to um, say, because I found that interesting, that, you know, that the, the Russians, which is, a, you know, what you told me on the John le Carré programme, but the, the Russians didn't do very well here in terms of spying no, the Russians didn't do very well. <laughs> they did try a few people. They tried to infiltrate some sort of people who were working on Russian ships when they docked it at Hong Kong. But everyone who came off the ships was watched very closely. Um, and the other way they tried to do it was what they had tried for many years in, in China as well, was to convert or, or force former Russian emigres, people who had left you know, from the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, or been born outside Russia since then, uh, what we used to call the White Russians. They, they tried to convert them, but that was always not very successful either, because most of those either had or were brought up with a great hatred of the Soviet Union. So it was very difficult for the Russians to do it, even though, um, you know, there are a few stories which people always try to sort of make sound quite exciting. They, no, nothing ever seems to have lasted for very long. John le Carre, as we've talked about before, but it's worth reiterating, and, and I think all of us would agree he, put, he knew more about this than, than pretty much anyone, always thought that the Russians never managed to get anywhere in Hong Kong and that the Chinese didn't make big efforts to uh, infiltrate Hong Kong. And indeed, if they knew that the Russians were trying to infiltrate Hong Kong, were quite keen to stop that as well, because what nobody wanted, what they did was anyone interfering any sort of, you know, KGB spy shenanigans interfering with the handover process. And, of course, they knew that that was coming and they always wanted that to be smooth. And, of course, as you know, the, the Chinese were in their own spat 
with with the Russians at the time, the Sino-Soviet split. So the Sino-Soviet split then leaks over into um, not wanting any messing about with the handover between London and Beijing. And so the, the KGB never really get much of a foothold there. There's some very exciting scare stories around at the time, as there's always scare stories. And there's a couple of Russians arrested here and a couple of Russians arrested there and a bit of industrial espionage as well. But nothing ever major, you know, nothing that anyone could really get hold of. And of course, what, what Le Carre also says is that those people that were able to put spies back into China were former Chinese who had moved to Hong Kong who were largely perhaps working for the Russians or working for themselves. And he downplays that aspect of things very much. And I think if you look at the news reports at the time, it kind of, you know, the, the newspapers are very keen to flag up kind of, you know, red spies called to coming off a ship or something, but they never get very far. They're, they're always busted very quickly. <laughs> Now, we've been talking the 1940s onwards today, but I'm going to take you back a century before because, of course, there's a, a sort of what was regarded as a case of domestic terrorism here quite early on in the time when Hong Kong becomes a, a British colonial territory. And that occurs with a poisoning that comes out of a bakery. And uh, it was interesting also just, just the fear level of, of who's done that and who's struck that, of course, because the actual victims of it, although nobody died, uh, but there was plenty of vomiting were actual British expatriates living here, or early expatriates. It wasn't the local Hong Kong Chinese population, for example. So there was a real fear um, of who had caused that. Yes. Well, I mean, it's 1857. So Hong Kong's only been a, a colony for 15 years after the first opium war. And we're now in the second opium war. So there's a massive spy panic underway. And, and that spy panic was due to the fact that uh, the Second Opium War, in one sense, was very different to the First Opium War in that the sort of seemingly the strength and the resolution of, of the Chinese people, particularly in the south of China, to oppose the British attack, although it may not be successful militarily, was much stronger than, than the British were expecting. And of course, there was in the Second Opium War, there was this ability to undermine Britain just around the corner, right, down in Hong Kong, whereas in the First Opium War, of course, you know, they hadn't been a colony out there. That, so, so, you know, could they do go to London and try and do something? I mean, they didn't really have the capability to do that. So it was a new situation in that sense. And there was a bakery called the Easing bakery and something happened with the with the flour and lots of people got very sick nausea vomiting intense stomach pains could be contaminated food but nobody really knew the owner uh, mr chong was put in the dock but seemed to have no idea what had happened or why he would uh, be accused of attempting to poison people but of course people who thought he was a, a spy or a terrorist working for uh, the Chinese said, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Right. You know, you would you would appear difficult. So so was he a master spy or was he just an, an innocent baker who had a bad lot of dough? <laughs> well, I mean, people who've looked at it in much more detail than I have, academics and historians have never really got conclusively uh, to the bottom. The point was that for the for the British authorities, this was clearly an act of terrorism. They saw it as a war crime. Uh, they used it to try to make their war in uh, China more more righteous seeming, and also to encourage 
forces back home in England who might be, uh, you know, not too happy about the war, that, you know, money needed to be put in, the, the colony needed to be protected from these sorts of attacks. So what I find interesting about that is, unfortunately, very difficult for us to get to the bottom of that story now. But it's this idea of talking about spies and spies, in this case, tipping over into terrorism uh, or an act of terrorism, if you like, as a sort of a, a justification for continuing a war, a justification for the support of a war, which in many ways was, of course, unjustifiable and a demonizing of, of the people that you're at war with uh, when, when that may not actually even be the case. Paul French, thank you very much for your time today. Now, um, you've written about personalities in Shanghai, in uh, Peking, Beijing, uh, and uh, across China, and also Macau, among others. If you were a spy, what time era and where would you have liked to have been a spy? Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the one that, that really interests me is, of course, you know, Shang anywhere that's a kind of crossroads, anywhere where lots of different people turn up and mix and, and interact is going to be a centre of espionage, right? So, of course, Shanghai before 1949 and, and Hong Kong, because it, you know, is geographically a crossroads and so on. You know, we see quite a lot of spy activity in places like Singapore and so on. But for me, World War II in Macau, which, which I've been working on recently, was is a kind of a fascinating one. Because the thing about Macau is, as we've referred to it before, the Far East Casablanca. Everybody is there, but there is no war on. It is neutral, Portuguese controlled. And so you've got the British right next door to Nazi Germans, right next door to the Japanese, and everybody else is feeding in with that. And when I started looking at Macau and going into that story in depth during the war, I mean, there are no spy agencies that aren't there. The French are mixing around because they're just over the water in Indochina. Nationalist Chinese are in there. Our old friends, the triads, uh, are in there smuggling things in and out. You know, the Portuguese intelligence service itself is trying to work out what everyone else is doing that might undermine their neutrality, which, which they're paranoid about, that the Japanese will just say, oh, you're not really neutral, mm. we'll take over Macau. Or later in the war, the Americans will say, you're not really neutral will take over Macau. And so I think that there is it's kind of fascinating because it's not a it's not a shooting bang bang kind of uh, a spy game there. It's very much that kind of classic you know, Le Carre like in the shadows type spy game of just trying to influence things, trying to to find out what the opposition is doing, find out what the situation is kind of pure espionage that's going on with everybody looking at everybody but in a very small environment and, and often in places like uh, the hotels of Macau and so on you know all in the same room together uh, sort of eyeing <laughs> each other up and I think that kind of you know I'm just I'm just sorry I've just got these images of everybody reflecting off everybody else on their silver teapots and you know I've watched too many films obviously but you know <laughs> or just listening to the conversation on the next table rather than their own yeah well I mean you know it, it, it's quite possible you know you you could go in various hotels around uh, Macau, and there would be officers in Nazi uniform. There would be obvious uh, officers of the, the Portuguese intelligence service, and it would wander, you know, British diplomats. It was the only, for most of the war, it was the only British consulate between India and Australia, right? The so-called lone flag. Nationalist Chinese are coming in and out 
from southern China all the time. French intelligence officers are coming over from Indochina, Vichy French, as well as Free French. So there's all these internal fights going on as well. You know, you've got German Jewish refugees who are obviously anti-Nazi, forced often to be in the in the vicinity yeah. of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, swastika wearing Nazis. You've got Free French agents who, of course, had gone, many of whom had gone to Hong Kong, and then then some of whom went to Macau, mixing with Vichy French, who, of course, are working with the Germans. So, so you've got all of these different groups sort of uh, buzzing around each other like flies and thinking, how can they gain some advantage? How can they get intelligence? What's going on there? As, as well as just, obviously, everyone feeding into that kind of as the situation goes on you know we see the fall of shanghai and of china and southern china and waves of people coming into macau then then we see the fall of hong kong waves of people coming in then vichy france first of all taking over indochina and then that really coming under japanese control and it's all going on in macau and i think it's also been very little written about my thanks to british author paul french who specializes in books on modern chinese history his latest Destination Peking. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.